When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thanks for listening to the latest Football Digest podcast available on all podcast platforms. Subscribe now through Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Acast or wherever you get your podcasts from so you don't miss a single episode. Hello and welcome to the Football Digest podcast. I am joined today by Ned Keating and we are going to talk transfers as always. We're in July and this is the transfer season and there's only one place to start Ned Declan Rice finally after probably six weeks of speculation speculation dating further than the Europa Conference League final that West Ham won uh, Declan Rice is set to seal his Arsenal move what are your initial thoughts and reaction to this deal finally getting over the line well I think for everyone involved it'd be good to, to kind of you know for it all to be over and, and done with, you know, West Ham can now move on, Arsenal can now move on, Declan Rice can now move on. Um, so so that's the benefit in the fact that it's done nice and early in the transfer window as well. We're, again, as we've discussed several times in this podcast already, um, that allowed Declan Rice pretty much a full uh, pre-season with Arsenal to get used to their players, to get used to his new teammates, um, Arsenal to get used to him, it will benefit them as well. And likewise for West Ham as well, they're not chasing around towards the end of a window trying to bring in a replacement for him. Um, again, the fact that it's done nice and early um, is is quite handy on that front as well. Um, so yeah, so it's it's quite funny that we're talking about Declan Rice here um, because and again, I'm sure we're coming to it now. But as as I'm talking, I've just had the Sky News notification flash up about his best mate Mason Mount completing his Man United deal as well. So I think for both of them, it's it's obviously a very exciting time um, uh, for sure. And and you know, again for for even Mount as well there to to what I've said about. Rice going to West Ham and how everyone is happy and that he gets a whole pre-season there. Mount's going to have the same at Man United. Uh, but for this Rice deal, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's it's one that we knew was coming, especially after Manchester City pulled out of the race to sign Rice. Um, you know, it's just a case of kind of dotting the I's, crossing the T's, Arsenal and West Ham getting down and, and sourcing out the final details of this uh, £105 million transfer, which they've now done. Um, so obviously they've come to some sort of compromise in terms of instalments and everything else involved with it. Uh, and now Declan Rice can get on with focusing uh, on becoming an Arsenal player and, and meeting his new teammates in the coming weeks. So Arsenal have already added Kai Havertz. Uh, Declan Rice will join, obviously, alongside them. Julian Timber looks like a goer. So that's three big players and big transfer fees that Arsenal are spending. Do you think now they have to look at the, the exit door, you know, to, to balance the books a little bit because also spent a lot of money over the last two or three years. That's that's the, the strange thing in this is that, yes, you would expect them to move players on because they need to, as you said, they balance the books and, and kind of make sure that, you know, they're kind of staying within the, the you know, financial boundaries, which I'm sure they are. But uh, one thing that you could say about Arsenal last season is that I think they lacked depth in that squad. Um, you know, I'm not saying... Thomas Partey was was a was a great midfielder, but when he, you know, and, and he's one that's being looked at, at leaving this summer, but when he wasn't in the side, they didn't look as good with him. So you think that maybe they were just trying to, 
you know, not necessarily a depth Rice would come in and probably be number one over Partey, but Partey would be a good option as a number two, but it looks like he's moving on. Same with Granit Xhaka as well. They're adding these players in midfield, but then equally they're, they're, they're losing them. So I think that is, you know, Arsenal do have to do it from a financial commitment point of view and would Granit Xhaka, the wages that he's on. And again, he was looking to, to leave this time last year and join Jose Mourinho at, at Roma. Um, but the wages he's on, would that be, you know, would you be happy paying those wages for somebody who's not a guaranteed first team starter? No. And the same goes for Thomas Partey as well. You know, likewise, they're, they're both on uh, nice little learners that would be expected of first team players and not not necessarily reserves, but rotation players, players that come in, um, you know, that, that add that depth to that squad. So from that point of view, yes, they do have to move them on, but it is an interesting one because Arsenal would then kind of not fall back into the same trap of last year, but there'll still be those kind of question marks. And especially with the, the added, uh, you know, being back in the Champions League means that it's not like playing on a Thursday night when you can kind of play those fringe players and, and give your first team as a rest. These first teamers would be expected to play Saturday, Tuesday, Wednesday, the weekend again, then play midweek again in the Champions League. It will be, um, they need that squad depth in it because there is that, you know, the added importance, that added expectation. You can't, you know, as I said, they're play fringe players or the kids like you can do perhaps in the Europa League group stages on a Thursday night in the Champions League. You need to be playing your best players. So yes, Arsenal do need to move some players on like Xhaka and like Partey who have been linked with exits um, to, again, as we said there, you know, to kind of balance those financial commitments because they have spent so much over so many windows. But it then leaves them back in that same position of, of perhaps maybe what let them down uh, in the title running last year. They, they just didn't have that depth. And when certain players got injured in certain positions, that, that kind of prevented them from showing them best selves. And, and you kind of, not so much fear, but you kind of, as I said there, you kind of worry if they're kind of, they're not, they are adding great players into the squad, but are they leaving themselves in the same situation that, that perhaps let them down in the running last year? That That's the only concern there. And Granit Xhaka looks set to seal a £21.5 million move to buy Ali Vakuzin. So that's a, a good bit of business for Arsenal. But we'll we'll continue on the Arsenal theme. Um, story today, come out of German outlet Sport Build, I think it is. So apologies if I've mispronounced that one. Jeremy Fringpong, the fullback, I think came from Man City's academy and played for Selig as well. Uh, Arsenal and Man United both interested in the right back. What do you make of this story? Do you think there's any legs to it? Clearly, Mikel Arteta loves someone who can play right back. Um, you know, he signed Takahiro Tomiyasu and, and Ben White in the same window. He's got Ben White playing right back now. They're being linked with Yuri and Timber in this window or whether Yuki's comfortable at playing right back, but perhaps not home at centre-half. Uh, with Fringpong, at least he is an out-and-out right back. Uh, you know, they're kind of breaking the mould on, on this list of players. But it does seem that, you know, he's a, he's a good player and he's a talent for sure. Um, you know, you don't go through Man City's academy uh, and be linked with clubs like Man United and Arsenal um, if, if you don't have it. Um, and, and he's had a great season uh, with Bayern Leverkusen. He was, he was somebody who impressed me as well at, at Celtic. I know people might scotch at the, the level of the Scottish League and that you probably only play, what is it, three or four uh, big games a season in, in those derby matches with Rangers. But... You know, even even when he was playing, you know, in in the European competitions for Celtic, he was still someone that caught the eye, someone that really, um, you know, kind of grabbed your attention. And, and from right back, that that's something quite interesting. Um, and the fact that he's he's carried that form on into the Bundesliga, a step up, and and done well uh, for Bayer Leverkusen, uh, and especially since Xavi Alonso's come in, um, yeah, it'll be you know he's he's someone that even when he was at Celtic, he was linked with a Premier League move. Um, so you kind of. 
you know, these clubs obviously see something in him that they think he's he's well suited to this league because it's not just, you know, attacking fullbacks as well. You, you know, more and more we are seeing questions being asked to the defensive side. You look at Trent Alexander-Arnold when there was a great attacking fullback, but last season in particular at times he was asked more questions defensively than perhaps in previous campaigns. So again, you need that from a right back, but Frimpong has shown that. He's shown that he's, he's capable of attacking and defending um, and and for thirty four million pounds, I think in the current market, that that would almost be a slip for a player of his, uh, you know, current level, current ability, and, and the potential that he's got as well. Because I still think that he's got his best years very much ahead of him. So uh, it's it's one to perhaps watch, especially with Manchester United and Arsenal having got their big deals uh, sealing the over the line quite early on in the window. It it kind of allows them to then refocus their attentions elsewhere on other deals that they can start adding into their squads. Yeah, Man United also heavily reported to only have a hundred million pound transfer budget and we know that they've spent more than half of that on one player so if they were to sign Frimpong without selling another player that you would think would be their transfer business done and I think they definitely need more than just a right back But sticking on the Manchester United theme now, this is a, a big one. The Manchester United goalkeeping situation, it's almost like a reality TV show watching the, the drama of it all. So just to run through kind of what's happened so far, David De Gea's contract was offered, then revoked. Man United's have offered him another contract. That hasn't been signed. So technically, David De Gea is a free agent right now. Uh, Andre Onana from Inter Milan, heavily linked as the future number one. Dean Henderson's future not yet decided. He was on loan last season at Nottingham Forest. And on top of that, United have reportedly bid £2.5 million for the Fenerbahce goalkeeper Alte Bayinde and are also interested in Robert Sanchez from Brighton who will cost reportedly £30 million despite being their number two. So, Ned, let's unpack that. Let's start with the David De Gea situation. Do you think his time at Old Trafford is done? It's like Love Island, isn't it, really? The whole situation. It's like they've got into, to, I think they're doing Casa and more at the minute. I've not watched this year's series, but I think I've seen on, on socials that it's Casa and more. People would say that. I'm just claiming not to have watched it. But yes, no, genuinely, it's not been on the TV this year. Um, but it is like Love Island, isn't it? You know, it's like you couple up with someone, you couple up with David De Gea, Man United are coupled up with David De Gea. And then a new guy walks in and they're, they're kind of like, oh, Andre Anana. And they want to get to know him. And then they kind of put David De Gea on the back burner, but then they realise that they might get dumped from the island. So that they start chatting up David De Gea again and, and try to keep him back. It is, isn't it? It's like Love Island. Um, is his time coming to a close at Man United? I would be very surprised given how they've treated him in this whole situation. You know, we covered this on, on previous podcasts this summer. The fact that, you know, they offered the contract, they verbally agreed the contract, and then they pulled the contract back. If that's me, I'm 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 done. I'm you know, the disrespect that that I was showing in those transfer dealings, that would be enough for me. Um, so I'd be very much surprised if David De Gea does it. And quite frankly, like they both, you know, Man United have shown to David De Gea that they don't value him as much as they once did. So I'd be surprised if De Gea then thinks, oh, okay, well, they don't like me as much as they did, but I'll go back to them anyway. Manchester United have also, you know, it, it became increasingly apparent towards the back end of last year that the style of football that they're looking to play is not compatible with the goalkeeper that David De Gea is. He's a, you know, and and even the levels that he was at when he was a, a brilliant shot stopper, he's he's kind of, he's not on those same levels again, but in terms of playing out from back, he's definitely not what they need and what Eric Ten Hag wants. So it, that, that became clear. 
offering, in the, offering him a new deal and the money that that would involve, again, similar to what I was saying about Arsenal, you would not want David De Gea on you know, a, a fairly hefty wage still. Yes, it will not be as much as he's on was on previously, but he'd still be on a fairly hefty wage. And especially as a goalkeeper, you don't rotate them, do you? So, he, you know, you'd be paying the guts of 150 grand at least for a guy to sit on your bench. It just makes no sense. Like, are, are, they, are they panicking? Have they thought, ah, okay, we, we don't have the money to buy a new goalkeeper now. Let's just give him the money. But then that's just typical of how Manchester United have been run probably since David Gill left. No foresight, no forward planning. All right, we'll splash 60 million on Mason Mount for a midfield midfielder that do we necessarily really need? Probably not. I think their midfield is okay. It's not, you know, a player of Mount's ability is going to improve it. But I think there was two areas of concern that they needed to address this summer. One was striker, whether or not they'll do that. Again, you know, as you said there, the transfer budget may need to have players sold to boost it to sign a striker. But the other one was goalkeeper. It was increasingly apparent that David De Gea, you know, towards the back end of last season, as these contract talks were going on and, and dragging on and, and his performances and the way that he was playing and the style that Manchester United were wanting to play, being not compatible, that it was coming to an end of a road. So you should be having plans in place then. But now it seems like they've got to the summer. They've splurged all this money on Mason Mount and they've now realised, oh, we might not have as much money now to spend on the goalkeeper as we otherwise thought we would. Let's rush back to to the old guy and see if he's still willing to take on the deal. It, it just smacks of pure mismanagement from Manchester United in terms of their transfer strategy. We thought they'd changed last year. We thought they'd got things right with Eric Ten Hag and him being more involved. But this is just harping back to the old days, isn't it? You know, th- th- there's no, seemingly there really is no forward planning here. The fact that they've gone back to the Haya after he's left the club, after they offered him reduced terms, after they pulled uh, those reduced terms as well, you know, went back on that verbal agreement to then go back and go, oh yeah, yeah, by the way, mate, we actually do have a contract for you. Again, it just, I just cannot think of any other top level sports team in the world, not just football, any top level sports team in the world that would be so catastrophically badly mismanaged as Manchester United have shown in this whole David De Gea scenario, which again, go back to my earlier point, would not look out of place on Love Island. What about Dean Henderson? His future not yet decided. I think Nottingham Forest are interested in keeping him, but there's been quite quiet on that front, hasn't it, so far? It feels like Maybe, I don't know, teams are trying to hold out so the fee can get a little bit lower because I think it was reported we were looking for around £25 million, which is a, a lot of money. But his future not yet decided. Could he be an answer to this current goalkeeping problem for Man United? Or do you think Dean Henderson and Man United is finished? It's a, it's a strange run in the respect of, I think, the way that Dean Henderson plays and that he's a better distributor of the ball, that he might actually be the better solution in the for this for Manchester United. I think... You know, his his performances haven't been as good as when he first, uh, you know, came into the Premier League with with Sheffield United, obviously on that loan spot. Did well for them in the Championship, stuck with them that first season in the Premier League and then had that battle uh, in his first season back at Manchester United uh, with David De Gea to be, to be number one under Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. And he could never, you know, De Gea could never move ahead of Henderson. Henderson could never move ahead of De Gea. They were kind of really matched level. Um, and then, you know, injuries and, and, and other, you know, illnesses as well on the side kind of really set his progress back and, you know, injuries again hampered his spell at at Nottingham Forest. That's the reason why they had to go out and get Caelan Navas in January because of the injury suffered by Dean Henderson. So he's not really had that opportunity to kind of, you know, kick on in his development as a goalkeeper. He's still relatively young for a goalkeeper. Again, you know, he's probably not going to have his best years for another 10 years. 
it could be a cheap option for Manchester United. It's just whether or not his shot-stopping ability and his ability with his hands and his reflexes matches the ability that he has with his feet. Again, I think he's a, you know, a, a clearly a better distributor than, than David De Gea. And if that's the way that Manchester United want to go and they don't have money to go out and sign, you know, players like Andre Anada that they've been linked with, then maybe Dean Henderson might be the solution, a cost-effective solution. Um, I think as well, if they were to, you know, I don't think there's anything lost in it. Of course, they'll look at, you know, the, the fees and I think Nottingham Forest will be linked with a £20 million move for, for Henderson perhaps, or, or that's the asking price anyway for anyone that wants to come in for it. And so, yes, they might want to get £20 million in the bank because then that allows them to go out and look at other players. But it might just be that Henderson, if he's given a chance and given a run in the first team, you know, how many how many other you know players and goalkeepers have we seen in the past that, that finally get a chance and you kind of need that consistency in them. You know, I don't think he's there yet at the level to be a goalkeeper for Manchester United, but I think they're showing with this De Gea situation that there is no... They, they don't have the money perhaps available that they would have liked to go and sign a goalkeeper this summer. So if they don't have that, they might as well just, you know, take a, not, not so much a gamble or a punt on Dean Henderson, but give him another chance, see if he is, you know, with his hands, can improve, can be better because his his footwork and his and his ability to ball at his feet, and it sounds weird to say that for a goalkeeper, but this is the modern game, his, his distribution is better than De Gea's and more in line with where Manchester United want to play, how they want to play. Um, so that might be something that they should consider. Um, it's just whether or not, as I said, you know, the work with the hands, the work up top is as good as the work downstairs. Last one on the goalkeeping situation, Robert Sanchez from Brighton. He's their second choice, well, was the first choice keeper, then became second choice keeper behind Jason Steele of all players. Um, really bad flashbacks there to the Sunderland Netflix documentary with Jason Steele. But £30 million for the second choice goalkeeper at Brighton, that to me just seems a little bit much. I think you're being very disingenuous to the situation there and I hate to call you out on the podcast, but of course the reason why Sanchez I think ended up being second choice is that he was there was a lot of speculation about his future and, and whether or not he wanted to stay there. So it was a, a, a kind of a decision born out of you know, the fact that Sanchez was looking to move on and and kind of similar to Moise Caicedo in January, you know, kind of, I don't think he went as far as to turn up for training, but it was one or two games that I think he pulled out of um, as well. So I think it's more to do with uh, Roberto De Sherby not being too happy with uh, Robert Sanchez's behaviour uh, behind the scenes. Um, he's a good goalkeeper. Um, 30 million in this market, I think is relatively cheap again for it. But again, it comes back to whether or not, you know, United are looking around and having spent, as you said there, you know, more than half of their their reported transfer budget uh, again you know kind of it, it can be a bit smoke and mirrors at times yes clubs trying to kind of you know spend within their means but equally they're never going to go out and go we've got an unlimited budget charge us what you want to other clubs you know in, in that respect they do kind of um, you know perhaps play a bit of smoke and mirrors I think on that front and kind of you know say one thing and they might have a little bit more in the kitty behind the scenes but um, you know it, it, it dials back to that do they have 30 million to spend on a goalkeeper this summer um, and if they do then Sanchez might be the option to look at you know um, great performances for Brighton um, you know earning caps in the Spanish national team as well um, so it's it's one that you know it could make sense and again he's approaching that kind of stage in his career where he's about to get into his best years I think as a goalkeeper as well um, and you know, then as well, we'd probably still be at United for, for the next kind of, you know, 10, 12 years again because of that age and because of where he was coming into that, that you won't have to replace him in 
in, you know, say kind of three or four years. Um, so yeah, I think in, in the current market, 30 million is not a bad price uh, to, to pay for someone, uh, albeit if, as you said there, he didn't finish the season at Brighton's number one, but I think that's more to do with his uh, behaviour behind the scenes than his uh, ability. That would be the concern though, you know, the, the behaviour behind the scenes is a surely a red flag. I mean, it would be a red flag if I was signing the player that at some point had basically went, I want to move, so, you know, give me that move and... Anyway. Ten Arkley, that was a bad boy. Um, Andre Onana as well left the World Cup because he had disagreements with his national team manager, Rigobert Song, the former Liverpool and West Ham defender, Rigobert Song, about how he wanted to play out from the back. And of course, you know, maybe that might entice Eric Ten Hag. Maybe that's the reason why. I mean, he's worked with Onana before, so he knows kind of all about him completely. Um, but in, as well, you know, that might excite him that, oh, so he's really desperate to play out from the back. He's that desperate that he'll, he'll sacrifice his place at the World Cup to come home. But, you know, I, I think... It's different as well to say, you know, where does, where does, and, and this isn't meant as disparaging to Brighton, but if Sanchez moves to Manchester United, what's the next step for him? Real Madrid, Barcelona, you know, there isn't, Brighton aren't there yet at that level to have that, that luster and that beauty. Players will still look at them as, as, you know, for want of a better term, a stepping stone to, to another club, um, to, to our, you know, clubs at a higher level, you know, more reputation, bigger names. Um, and I don't think that issue will follow him if he was to join Manchester United, I think, you know, aside from, as I said there, unless it's Real Madrid, Barcelona, there's, there's not really too many other clubs that you kind of, you know, hand in the transfer quest and want to, uh, you know, force the club's hand for. Okay, we'll continue on the Man United theme. Uh, Sofyan Amrabat from Fiorentina, 26-year-old defensive midfielder, very impressive at the World Cup. 49 games last season as they got the Europa Conference League final. And Eric Ten Hag has worked with him before when he was manager of Utrecht in Holland. What do you make of this link? Is this a something where you know we put two two and two together because of the previous links and Man United maybe having a, a needed defensive midfield? But as you said before, you know they've already signed Mason Mount for that department. Obviously, Mount's not going to be playing defensive midfield, but they've already added one midfielder. Do you think there's any legs to this one? Is it one that I think's got legs? No, um, you know. Again, going back to the whole idea about the kind of transfer budget and trying to spend it wisely, why would you spend it on a player who's going to be second fiddle to Casemiro? If Casemiro wasn't there, and you could see that that move coming through more than likely, but the fact that Casemiro is there, had such a great first season, um, and is one of the mainstays in that Manchester United side, and Sofian Amrabat would be competing with him for that position, it's, it's not one that I can see as being realistic. And that's not because Amrabat isn't a good enough player. He showed in the World Cup exactly the kind of player that he is has been linked with moves to Barcelona in, in January. And I'm sure, you know, they might be sniffing around again and other top clubs in Europe as well um, because he shows how good a player he is at the World Cup. But in terms of for Manchester United, again, because they've got Casemiro in that position and because the budget they might have splurged more than half on Mason Mount alone means that this probably isn't one that, that we can see getting done in this window um, and that they might be looking at ever, other areas of the squad where they can spend that money a little bit more wisely than perhaps on a position where they've already got one of the best players in the world. Okay, we'll jump now to Chelsea. God, I can't believe we've went 23 minutes without talking about Chelsea on a transfer podcast, but they are in talks to sign their former player Tino Livramento from Southampton and they are willing to loan him back 
to Southampton. Um, to me, this feels like a bit of a waste of resources, just in the sense that they need to do so much spending and rebuilding this summer to sign a player and loan them back out, a player that you already owned as well at a previous point. It just feels like a lot of expenditure for something you're not going to get benefit from right now. Do you think that this is a, a likely move or is it maybe Southampton putting feelers out about Livramento so that other teams start, you know, maybe getting involved in a bidding war? It, it, it may well be latter um, because as you say there, you know, Chelsea... I have other areas that they perhaps need to spend on. Um, you know, of course, like it wouldn't be, you know, eh. he's a good player, but to learn it back, it seems strange. They've got enough right backs as well. Yes, they've lost Cesar Azpilicueta uh, this summer, but Malo Gusto uh, will be joining the first team squad. They've got Reese James in that position as well. So it's not necessarily like they need another player in that position. How many right backs do you need in the squad? You know, and, and as well, Reese James and Malo Gusto are both young players. Um, you know, I know it was probably about six or seven managers ago. Uh, I joke at that point, it's only two years since Livermento went and Thomas Tuchel was obviously in charge that summer. Um, but Tino Livermento was clearly viewed by those at Chelsea at this point. And yes, it was a different ownership. And yes, the manager was different, but someone high up at Chelsea was was not, I wouldn't say overly convinced, but they were happy with the price that they were getting for him for, to, to allow him to move on to Southampton at the time. Um, so for two years later to kind of go, oh, we made a mistake. And yes, there has been a hell of a lot of change at Chelsea, <laughs> you know, in the dugout, on the pitch, everywhere, basically at that club. The only thing that hasn't changed is Stamford Bridge, I think, in that point. Um, that they may have, you know, realised, oh, he's been, he's been good for Southampton. Maybe we need to get him back. But um, it's it, it just seems a bit confused. Again, as you say there, you know, this is a club that's trying to really balance their FFP uh concerns this summer by the fact that they've brought in so many players they've still brought in so many players there's still so many other players that they've got to try and move on in this window um, before they could probably even start thinking about a deal for, for Tino Livramento um, it does seem strange and a bit left field if if you're asking me but with Chelsea you never know I think in this stage you know clearly they've shown that they like signing players they have an appetite for signing players um, and it doesn't matter how large that squad gets they'll just keep signing players um, so maybe it's one to watch, but I I'm, I'm, wouldn't be overly convinced of it happening. And Romelu Lukaku has been linked with a return to Inter Milan, another loan, but this one with a mandatory buy option in 12 months. Lukaku also reportedly doesn't want to come back to London, so clearly he does not see his future at Chelsea. Do you think this is the logical conclusion for Lukaku for him to go back on loan to Inter Milan, albeit this time with a, a mandatory buy option? I think Chelsea just need to, you know, not almost cut their losses, but they're not going to, you know, kind of, well, they are because they're not going to get, you know, close to the 100 million that they spent for him from this uh, buy option as well. But yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it was apparent within the first, you know, not even six months, what was it, it came in August and, and buy you know, the end of December, he was already criticising the style of play and, and how they were doing at Chelsea. And yes, again, they've had you know a hell of a lot of changes since he criticised that. And maybe he might fit in better under uh, Mauricio Prochettino. But I think from that moment on, when he made those criticisms, yes, it was a different owner at the time. Yes, it was a different manager. And yes, I think, you know, 90% of that starting eleven has pretty much left the club by now. But it was never going to be easy to win the Chelsea fans back over from that point. Um, he didn't, perform well in that season didn't justify that 100 million pound price tag um he clearly likes you know he, uh, 
I mean, even last season as well, we didn't hit heights that maybe he would have wanted for Inter Milan, just 10 goals in, in 25 Serie A appearances. But he seems to enjoy Italy a bit more. He'd always said, even when he was at Manchester United, I think that he wanted to go out and play a Serie A. And he got that, that move to Inter Milan in 2019, got that dream. And he went back there last year and he's, you know, wants to leave Chelsea, doesn't want to come back to London, doesn't want to go to Saudi Arabia as well. You know, there was, there was kind of talk about that. So yeah, in terms of options for him, I think it's a limited market. And if Inter Milan want him back, I think Chelsea have to, you know, pick up the phone and, and kind of start speaking Italian down the phone to him and say, yes, we can, yes, sir, no, sir, three bags full, sir. Because, um, yeah, they still need to, to get him off the wage bill. Um, and even if they can't get it all off the wage bill and they can get some of it, that's still, you know, more than having him there at Chelsea. Um, and it's clearly not worked out for him at Stamford Bridge. So yeah, the, the sooner that they can uh, move him on again, even if it is just a loan for this season and then perhaps, you know, permanently next summer. Um, again, I think it's one that benefits all parties. Yeah, has to go down as one of the worst transfers in recent years, certainly for a player that went for nearly £100 million. Uh, we'll we'll tick off now just a few quick bits. Um, Steven Gerrard has taken a job in Saudi Arabia. I think there's been a lot of criticism of him for making this move. What are your views on this? Obviously unemployed. I don't know what his financial situation is, but maybe he does need to work. Maybe he's not as well off as you would think a former Liverpool and England player would be. Um, what's your view on this and would he have been better served maybe waiting for a job in the lower, you know, maybe the championship or even League One if you want to get back as a Premier League manager one day? I think the job that Unai Emery did at Aston Villa taking over from Steven Gerrard put pay to any hoops and aspirations that you're out right of getting a, a return to the Premier League anytime soon. Um, you know, he, he may be going down to the low leagues um, and, and going down to the championship, you know, yes, it might have taken a hit for the ego, but it might have been the chance for him to kind of, um, you know, kind of rebuild his his stature as a manager, which was quite high when he left Rangers and quite low by the time he'd, he'd left Aston Villa. Would clubs in the championship be able to have afforded him? Probably not. Um, you know, was linked with the Polish national team job earlier in the year um, after they set their coach after the World Cup or parted company with their coach, sorry, after the World Cup. Uh, the ex-Portuguese boss, Fernando Santos, got that instead. Um, so yes, he has been out of work for a while, uh, obviously since leaving Aston Villa. But I think this move has, you know, much like, and I know there's some players that have gone to Saudi Arabia, like to Ruben Neves and, and others, but a lot of the players that are moving out to Saudi Arabia are kind of seeing it as a retirement league. I think in terms of Steven Gerrard's still relatively young managerial career, this is the retirement stage of it for him. It's not going to go anywhere from this. I think it's him admitting that it's it's over after this. He'll get paid nicely. But, you know, I can't see any, you know, how many teams have you seen in the past, top level teams, um, you know, go and approach a manager that's been working out in Saudi Arabia or, or, or you know, the UAE or, or wherever else, or even the MLS for that fact, you know, not many managers migrate back into Europe's top leagues from that, uh, from those leagues and those competitions from managing out there. I know obviously Rudy Garcia has gone to, you know, breaking the mould there and, and gone to Napoli City Art champions from uh, from El Nasser where he's managing Cristiano Ronaldo so obviously there, there is a little bit of hope for him but by and large I just think that this is you know Stephen Gerrard almost holding his hands up and saying my managerial career is over um, so I'm just going to try and make what I can from it and enjoy it whilst I still can The only example I could think of was Rafael Benitez went to China didn't he and then came back and went to heaven so Maybe, but yeah, it feels to me like he's sort of written his tombstone by taking that job on his managerial career. Um, just very, very quickly, Man City have agreed to sell James Trafford to Burnley. 
50 million pounds on a goalkeeper. Do you think that's good business? And do you think Man City kind of have to sell him because Edison is clearly the number one and that will not change anytime soon? No, you're spot on there. Um, to get 15 million pounds per player, it's not made a first team appearance for Manchester City and he's only, you know, he's a good player and his potential is good, but the highest level that he's played in his league one. And yes, his stats were outrageous. I think it was 2020 or 22 uh, clean sheets. Might have been 22, I think. Um, clean sheets last season for Bolton so an outrageous uh, you know clean sheet return uh, in that league you know 46 matches and, and to get 22 is, is brilliant but he's only you know you're spending 15 I know it's you know I'm I'm looking at this very uh, simplistically but you're spending 15 million pounds on a player he's only the highest level that he's played at his league one that's you know He's a good player and he's, he's shown, you know, even for the England uh, under-21s at the current Euros, which is going on at the minute, um, that he has the ability and he looks like a really good shot stopper. So for him, this move is going to be brilliant because he's going to get first-team exposure, possibly, uh, at Burnley. Um, someone that Vincent Company would have been aware of and known well because of his links with Manchester City, obviously the former captain there. Uh, for Manchester City as well, £15 million for a player has not made a first-team appearance and probably would struggle to make a first-team appearance in the next three or four years. That's not bad dealings either. So again, in terms of going back to this whole idea and this whole mode about trying to, you know, stay within your financial boundaries, um, you know, that will help Manchester City getting fifteen million pounds for a player that, as I said, they're the highest level that he's played at at the minute is League One. So it's a, a very, very nice boost to their potential transfer kitty for Manchester City, I think. It's good when an academy has that made in Manchester City's academy sort of stamp that can stick on players and get an extra you know, a few million pounds. And last one, just before we sign off, Carlo Ancelotti has reportedly agreed to take over as the manager of Brazil next summer for the Copa America. So that probably means we've only got one more year of Carlo in European football, one of the greatest football managers of all time. Do you think this is a, a good move for him making that adjustment to international football where he can probably build up to the World Cup? in America in 20, well, North America in 2026, that would be. you think this is a good move for him? I'm not sure. I'm not sure in that, you know, he, it's, 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 a, it's a weird one because it's, club management and international management are two very, very different beasts. Um, and I think international management, you almost need to be a good facilitator. And it doesn't matter so much about, you know, it, it obviously it does matter about tactics, but your man management skills, because you've got such limited time with these players, you have to be a perfect man manager to to be able to extract the absolute best from them. Carl Angelotti has showed that he is a good man manager down the years. You know, he's worked wonders with, with Real Madrid, but it kind of almost feels like he's a, he's a finisher in a project as well. You know, when Arsenal were looking at between I think Angelotti and, and, and Mikel Arteta for the replacement for Uno Emery back in, what was it, December 2019. Um, and obviously Angelotti ended up at Everton at that point. But the, the, the kind of, you know, the debate was, well, Arteta will be a project manager and build a project. And whereas Ancelotti is more of a kind of a finisher, you know, kind of someone's, I'm not saying that Ancelotti's lazy and that he doesn't do the hard work, but he seems to kind of come in where, you know, they're kind of progressing, progressing, progressing. And then just when they need that little finishing touch, the, the winning touch almost, he's there to add it to them. Is this Brazil squad at that point where they need that winning touch? Neymar's coming towards the, you know, he's reaching the twilight of his career. So it's not, you know, is it finishing off there? I think, I don't know if Brazil were at the right stage in the journey for it, is what I'm trying to say. And of course, you know, the fact for Ancelotti that he will be 
Um, it'll probably still be based in Europe because the majority of that Brazilian squad do do play European football. So maybe that that that's what they're looking at as well. You know, for for Mano Menezes when he was in charge of that team, um, and and Chiche as well, and and all the previous other Brazilian managers that they've had in charge. Um, the issue for them is that they're Brazilians, they're based in Brazil and, you know, probably live in Brazil as well with their lovely wife and kids and whatnot. And all their players are playing in Europe. It's hard to keep tabs on them. Carlo Ancelotti obviously doesn't have that issue because I'm, I suppose he will be staying based in Europe somewhere and that he can easily get around and kind of watch the games and, you know, watch some Brazilian players in Germany one week, watch them in France the next, England the next and, and Spain after that. So he can keep tabs on these players probably a lot closer. Um but it is a different thing. You can win, you know, there's countless managers that we've seen, you know, at club level win everything and, and do superb jobs and and they can't necessarily translate that same impetus into into national team management. You know, look at look at Hansi Flick at, at Germany, had that brilliant season at Bayern Munich, a great success um, and, and couldn't translate that with Germany as a, as a recent result. And, and there's, you know, countless other examples down the years of, of managers who have worked well at the club level that haven't been able to translate that into the international game. So it'll be an interesting one to watch for sure. Happy days. Well, good luck to Carlo in Brazil. I think he'll do a, a decent job there. I'm, I'm actually curious to see how he'll do with international football, but we have ran out of time this morning. Ned, thanks everyone for listening and please remember to subscribe, like, do whatever you need to do on our podcast platforms. And yeah, thanks for joining us. Thanks.